At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. In the old days, not so long ago, madmen were packed onto boats and shipped off to sea. They were said to be searching for their lost sanity. They called these boats the Ship of Fools. And for a long time, we thought we were the sane ones left behind on dry land. But what if we're not? What if so much time has passed that we've forgotten the truth? That we are, in fact, the fools. Afloat on an endless sea. Pretending to be normal. What does it mean, insane? A legal definition? What do I mean? I feel it, see it, but what is it? It is something they do, something they are. It is their unconsciousness. Do they ignore parts of reality? Yes, but it is more. It is their plans, their view. It is cosmic. They see through the here, the now, into the vast black, deep beyond, the unchanging. And that is fatal to life. Because eventually there will be no life. There was once only the dust particles of space, the hot hydrogen gases, nothing more, and it will come again. Insanity is not hubris, not pride. It is inflation of the ego to its ultimate. Confusion between him who worships and that which is worship. Man has not eaten God. God has eaten man. Thanks for that, Phil, my lord and pink bean savior. You just described our situation here in the Black Iron Prison, in this ship of fools helmed by psychopaths. Thank you. Such a disappointment. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise. And this is what we come up with? Weapons? More? Surely we have more imagination than that. We freaks and outcasts have always been marginalized and mocked and taken advantage of. But in this age of Hermes, we are the ones who see the whole of the moon. The ones who navigate madness because we replace fear with ecstasy, ambition with imagination. And now we soar with Dionysian delight while the meat sacks burn the world. 
We never had anything to lose and now we are the ones who can win. We see humanity devoured by creator gods and their butt slaves in the establishment. Much like Sackless eats every living thing at the end of time in the Gospel of Judas, including those who foolishly worship him. We transcend. Our blazing path is lit with the alchemical fire of ancient magicians, the burning blood of war goddesses like Anat and Sekhmet, the nuclear trail of the Ouroboros ridden by fucking Ra himself. We wield incredible power, the power to transform, to destroy, and to create again. The question, of course, before us is what the hell are we supposed to do with this power? Or more importantly, one should ask, what are we allowed to do with this power? The rulers of this age have betrayed us. They have ruined the land and the future of younger generations. They have created soulless keyboard warriors and circular firing squads on the streets with divide and conquer Circe magic. They have suspended our rights. They have been eaten by God. So you can give your heart to Jesus, but your ass belongs to God. Yet we are more powerful than them because we know ourselves and we know we are divine, full of mystic mana and Excalibur reason. Like the ancient Gnostics, we are the generation without a king over us, and we no longer give any oaths except to honor the blood-dimmed tide when the center cannot hold. We are driven by our ecstasy, humbly using our lucid psychosis to our advantage and to help the least of our brothers. As Philip K. Dick also said, Perhaps if you know you're insane, then you are not insane. Or you are becoming sane, finally. Human beings are the only animal that forms ideas about their world. We perceive it, not through our bodies, but through our minds. We must agree on what is real. Because of this, we are the only animal on Earth that goes mad. You materialize at the virtual Alexandria for that ecstasy, that lucid psychosis, that ancient dark gnosis. This is your life, don't play hard to get, as Queen sang. This is the greatest adventure of all your lifetimes, finding out who you are and what reality is not, and getting off this damn ship of fools. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. This episode will assist mucho with all that I've been talking about. You could consider this a Finding Hermes episode, in a way, since we'll explore a lot of alternative therapies. For this, our astral guest is Andy Cooper, a founder of Helios School of Esoteric Science. Andy will be sharing potent insights on neuro-linguistic programming, hypnotism, Hawaiian spirituality, and Western magic in general. Bigly Gnosis, and so glad to have Andy at the Virtual Alexandria. 
Trust me, NLP and hypnotism have helped me greatly in my leveraging of ecstasy and lucid psychosis in full humility. I consider them forms of meditation, allowing the unconscious to rise and employ its endless stream of imagination, that only weapon in the war against reality. Give them a try. Whatever door you open in my brain, I want you to shut it now. But here's an especially important point. In these Gnostic times, never settle for one or two or even three psycho-spiritual practices. The Archons are moving faster than ever, and they have fragmented the psyches and personas of each one of us. Their dark charms and propaganda are ubiquitous in total. The days of going once a week to church or for a ceremonial magic ritual or whatever don't work. The times of tarot or acupuncture once a day are over. The idea of just yoga or one type of entheogen or one type of prayer tech are done. As you embrace your madness, it must be frenetic and protean, and your spirituality must be mercenary, even as it was for the Christian Gnostics and Hermetics of ancient Alexandria, those servants of Hermes the god of thieves and Sophia the goddess of smugglers. You must move faster than the Archons, than your own ego that always craves that hubris so it can worship or be worshipped. You must always be moving through doors. Doors of perception and doors of transformation. Never with entitlement and never with privilege. You want to keep things on an even keel, I guess is what I'm saying. You want to go with the flow. The sea refuses no river. The idea is to remain in a state of constant departure while always arriving. It saves on introductions and goodbyes. The ride does not require an explanation, just occupants. To end. I'll quote a poem by Caitlin Johnstone. The earth is kept from spinning off its axis by unblinkered madmen. It exemplifies all that I've said on this intro. And at the end of the show, I'll play a very cool and very Gnostic hip-hop tune by Donovan Sims. You'll love it. But first, here is the poem. You have got to be out of your mind. You've got to be crazy enough to slap aside the hand that is offering you the Kool-Aid. You've got to be mad enough to call it a spade when everyone else is calling it a sunflower. You've got to be nutty enough to see a new world around the corner while everyone else says it's impossible. You've got to be off your rocker and skanking to 90s ska punk while everyone else is quite certain they're hearing a Calliope waltz. The earth is kept from spinning off its axis by unblinkered madmen, by lucid lunatics, by clear-eyed crazies. The only thing keeping the world from plunging into total insanity are those few who are insane enough to doubt its sanity. Those few who cringe at the tiny bloviations of the official newsman 
and strained to hear the whispers underneath the cacophony. Those few who close their eyes to the blaring screens and open their foreheads to the great big sky. Those few who are loony enough to see dust and ashes on the faces of billboards and paradise between the gaps in the noise. Satellite's been up there for thousands of years. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. The values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. You've got to be absolutely moonstruck to keep yelling at the bastards when the world insists you pretend you don't see them. To keep forging toward the light when everyone is screaming that it is darkness. To keep building heaven on earth while the world hides your bricks and buries your tools. Thank you, Berzik bulwarks. Thank you, savage saints, for daring to hallucinate when the world says regurgitate, for daring to howl when the world says march, for daring to dream when the world says die. You are the madmen who will lead us out of this madhouse. You are the homeless wanderers who will lead us home. God smiles. Led us to the interview with Andy Cooper. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Moral panic is defined as public anxiety or alarm in response to a perceived threat to the moral standards of society. several stops. The first is concern. This concern, limited at first, spreads from person to person. Amplified by cultural forces. Until rational concern becomes irrational fear. People come to believe something terrible is happening. Something they cannot see. That they can't control. It has come for others. It will come for them. Whether or not the threat is real, the response certainly is, and it is often excessive. Ask yourself, what's more terrifying? Fear? Or the frightened. 
This is the AM Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Andy Cooper. How are you doing, Andy? And thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm great, thanks. Looking forward to our chat. Great, beautiful evening here in Glastonbury in the UK. Ah, wonderful. Well, it's a little bit dreary here in the Midwest as fall arrives, but uh, it's always a scheduled. We can't, we can complain and talk about the weather, but it is what it is. And, uh, someone who is always in nice weather, that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing there in California? Oh, we're okay. A little smoky now and then, but, um, I'm blessed to be in an area that's not too affected by the fires. So looking forward to hearing about LNLP, which I first heard about in the eighties out here in California, where I think it all started. So should be good. Yes, and he did. Well, then let's get started. We got uh, not just NLP, but a lot of other wonderful topics that uh, Andy is versed in and will benefit our audience out there. But first, Andy, tell us, how did you get into magic? Well, that's an interesting story. And I got into magic really through neuro-linguistic programming, through NLP. So I uh, was a young trainer working for an international media company in the UK for Reuters back in the early 1990s. And I said to a friend of mine, what is it that makes a great trainer? What's the difference between an average guy who stands up in front of the room and delivers a training course and someone who's really brilliant, who has great charisma, great communication skills? And he looked at me and he said, you need to learn NLP. And I said, what on earth is that? This was 1992, early 1992. He said, it's neuro-linguistic programming. And I said, well, I'm none the wiser. Um, nonetheless, I went and explored that and went and did a training course and learnt the basics of NLP, which is essentially a very advanced set of communication skills that I used in therapy and in education and in healthcare and uh, in all manner of different contexts. So long story short, I learned it and then ended up a year later in 1993 in Hawaii doing my master practitioner of neurolinguistic programming with Dr. Tad James. And so the reason why I ended up in Hawaii was, well, twofold. The first was because having learned the basics of this amazing system of essentially psychology and psychotherapy and hypnosis and communication skills all rolled into one, and I'll explain what that is in a, in a little while, I also was really interested in Tad James in Hawaii at the time because he was interested in magic and metaphysics. And I'd learnt or read, rather, a couple of Dion Fortune's books in the early 1990s, The Training and the Work of the Initiate and um, Psychic Self-Defence. So I was curious but knew not much more than a bit of surface reading on the subject and thought that Hawaii was a cool place to go. So I ended up in November of 1993 in Hawaii learning my Master Practitioner of NLP. So NLP, or Neuro Linguistic Programming, as it is called, is essentially a set of tools and techniques for assisting with and helping personal change. It's got the rather complicated name of NLP because N stands for neuro, in other words, to do with the brain. L for language because, or linguistic because it's to do with language. 
and how we use language and how language shapes our experience of the world. And programming, because it's about the order and sequence in which we process data inside our head. In other words, we process the information coming to us from the outside world and make sense of it in our head. So that's where the rather cumbersome title of neuro-linguistic programming came from. So I started to realize how powerful this was for a system of personal change. And I'd experienced that to some degree myself. I'd seen people who were very good practitioners of neuro-linguistic programming, helping people with fixing phobias and clearing negative emotions from the past and clearing self-limiting beliefs. And I'd really seen firsthand how effective it was at doing those things. So I realized that this was something I wanted to learn and that it was absolutely brilliant for the skill set of a trainer which at that time was my main focus. That's my job. I'm a corporate trainer. I work for an international company traveling around the world doing training courses, and I needed to be as good as I could be, and hence I went and learned I, But the interesting thing about how James and the way NLP, he was taught by him and to a large extent many other NLP trainers, is that it's not just about learning a series of techniques you do to other people. It's about learning this from a perspective of how does it change me? Because only if you or the student or the practitioner has an undeniable experience of changing inside, of really experiencing personal change firsthand, how can you ever work with other people effectively using those techniques? You know, it really does come from the inside out. And so... The way that Tad taught NLP in Hawaii at that time in the early 1990s was from the perspective of this is a personal journey of transformation. And only when you experience that undeniable transformation in whatever that means for you, in whatever context of your life that is that you want to change, only then will you really get it at, at a very deep level, at a level where you can then work with other people to do that. So that was the perspective from which NLP in Hawaii by, was taught by Tad and his two co-trainers, John Overdorf and Julie Silverthorne at the time, who were equally exquisite in the way they taught NLP. So that was my first introduction, really, to serious personal change and transformation. Before we continue, I was wondering, have you always been into the uh, quote-unquote occult, esoterica, alternative studies before NLP or was this sort of the beginning of the the red pill if you would this was the red pill really Miguel I I bought a set of tarot cards when I was 18 and was intrigued by them but that was no more than that so yeah this was the red pill this was it okay (laughs) um and there was another big moment that got me back into into studying magic a, a few years later which I'll explain shortly um, but you're right. It was my red pill. I, uh, being in Hawaii and learning NLP, on one lunchtime, Tad James said to the assembled group of maybe 40 people who were on the training, if you're not doing anything that's lunchtime and you're at a loose end, come and watch a demonstration of Hawaiian Huna. And I thought, well, no idea what that is, but sounds interesting. And Hawaiian Huna is the ancient spiritual system of Hawaii. It's the shamanic healing system and magical system of the Hawaiian Islands. And because Tad James lived in Hawaii and because he knew many native Hawaiians, 
he'd become interested in Huna and learnt it himself and had a mentor, Uncle George Niope, who was a kumuhulu, a, a teacher of, of the hula dance and of the chant of Huna chants. And he'd taken Tad James under his wing and really taught him everything he knew about Huna. Now, Tad, being an NLP trainer, used the behavioral modeling techniques within NLP, the techniques that allow you to replicate behavior, if you like, from one person to another, to understand how somebody processes the world, how they do what they do, and to copy that essentially and replicate that behavior in other people. And Tad had used those behavioral modeling techniques to really understand how the excellent Hawaiian kahunas practice their magic. And we're talking about magic from a primarily a healing perspective. I mean, not only a healing perspective, but primarily from a healing perspective. And so I ended up attending this demo of Hawaiian Huna and saw an amazing demonstration of how Huna magic could be used to heal psychologically uh, something that needed healing within a person. So in the example I'm just about to give, there was a lady on the training who was uh, an English lady from North London, from Maida Vale, and she had a phobia of lifts. And for anyone who knows the Maida Vale tube station, the underground station in North London, it has mm, 300 steps down to the platform and a lift, no escalators. So (laughs) this lady walked down 300 steps every day in the morning to go to the tube platform to get her train to work and walked back up 300 steps every evening. Well, of course that was great for her health, Yeah, but but, uh, I think she wanted a little more flexibility in being able to have the choice as to whether she could use the lift or not. And so in this particular demonstration, she said she had a phobia of lifts. And so we took her outside into the lobby of the hotel and, um, opened the lift doors and said, why don't you get in and, and try it out? And she totally freaked out. You could see her physiology change. You could see her start to sweat. You could see everything about her was, uh, don't get me in that lift. There's no way I could go through those sliding doors. So we went back into the training room and Tad asked us some questions, used the usual NLP questioning techniques to figure out the root cause of this phobia. And then he just said to her, tell me when it's gone. And he did some strange breathing technique and wafted his hands around. And um, this lady sort of did a double take and said, well, uh, uh, it feels different. And he said, well, OK, should we go and test it out? And so we all trooped out into the lobby of the hotel and she walked into this lift and took the lift to the seventh floor of the building and was totally happy. Wow. Incredible. And I looked at that and I just went, wow. Like, I don't know what you did, but I want to know how you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I think all of us in the room at the time were like, wow, how do we, how do we do that? So to cut a long story short, I went and learned Huna and spent two years going backwards and forwards between the UK and Hawaii every six months doing intensive workshops and learning the basic processes of Huna magic. And that was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And Huna is an absolutely amazing and beautiful spiritual system, which I use to this day. It has a very power, uh, powerful energetic healing system. I jokingly call it Reiki on steroids, but it, it really <laughs> Love is. It. And I, uh, I think it's a fantastic system. However, I came back to the UK um, 
well, sort of permanently after my sojourn in Hawaii on and off over a few years. And I started to think to myself, well, what's the native spiritual traditions of my own islands? I mean, after all, just like Hawaii, I live on a, a big island. What's the what's the native traditions of, of the Blessed Isles of Britain, of Albion? And in those days, we're talking about the mid-1990s. We didn't have the internet as we do today. And there was a national magazine called Prediction. And it was the usual stuff of, you know, love spells and tarot readings and psychic stuff. But in the back were classified adverts for a whole vast array of training courses and magical schools. So I dutifully wrote off to all of these different magical schools and got back through the post a few weeks later, my brochures of what these schools had to offer. And there was Amalk and there was the Society of the Inner Light, founded by the Unfortune and the Lucis Trust, the Arcane School, the Alice Bailey School, all of the usual suspects. And one of them was the Servants of the Light, founded originally by Ernest Butler in the early 70s, and the director of studies of which, until relatively recently, was Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki. And something drew me to that particular school, and I noticed they were running a magical masterclass. So I wrote off to Dolores Ashcroft-Nawiki in Jersey and said, you know, you don't know me, but I'm a certified trainer of neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis, and I'd love to do your magical masterclass. And I have to laugh, even to this day, I, I have it. She sent me back a postcard of the harbour in Jersey, on Jersey Island in St. Helier. And oh, written cool. on the back of it, it just said, NLP and hypnosis is no substitute for magical training. <laughs> Dolores Ashcroft-Nawiki. Exactly. And I thought, okay, <laughs> that told me. Yeah. Um, anyway, s- subsequent to that, later on that year, I did end up going on a workshop Dolores ran, one for beginners rather than an advanced one. And we hit it off in a very deep way. And we've remained friends ever since, which is nearly 30 years now, 25 years. That was my first introduction to magic in the sense of um, studying NLP and Hunu in Hawaii, coming back to the UK and deciding I wanted to study some of the spiritual traditions of my own islands and what would they be. And so even when I applied to the service of the light, I mean, except a very rudimentary knowledge of what I'd read in a couple of Dion Fortune's books, I knew diddly squat, really. And so I started on a journey of learning Kabbalah and Tarot and all of the bits and pieces that make up the mainstay of the Western mystery tradition. And um, so that's how I ended up in in magic. However, just to finish that story, Miguel, um, it, it was a bit of a rocky journey. I mean, I did I did the first couple of years of training, and I kind of dropped off the wagon, and it was all a bit boring, and I wasn't quite sure whether I was getting that much out of it. And then one of those amazing but unpredictable life-changing experiences happened. And for me, that was September the 11th, 2001. And um, you can probably guess what I'm going to say. I was supposed to be on the top floor of the World Trade Center the day the planes hit. Oh, wow. And the company that I was director of training for at the time was hosting a conference in Windows on the World on the 101st floor of WTC. And I'd been away for the weekend previously with my wife, and it was the first weekend we'd actually had away together. We actually went to Atlantis in the Bahamas um, without the kids. And the kids were three and five at the time, and you know, first time we'd actually gone away without the kids in tow. 
left them with my parents. And um, on the way back, I'd had a really busy summer. And my wife said to me, look, Annie, she said, don't fly to New York on Monday. You don't have to be at that conference on, you know, on the first day. It's a two-day conference. You, and I was actually delivering a training course in New York in the Windows on the World uh, conference venue at the top of the World Trade Center on the oh. Thursday and Friday of, of that week. So I phoned up United Airlines and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to go out today. I'm going to fly, fly out tomorrow instead. And I said to my boss, Simon, who was same age as me, and my personal assistant, Mel, um, look, I'll see you in New York tomorrow night. I'm not coming out for the first day of the conference. This was on the Monday. So they flew out on the 10th of September, um, and I stayed in the UK and flew out the following day. I was actually at the airport boarding my plane at Heathrow when the plane hit the building. And to cut a very long story short, all my staff were killed and all our conference staff, uh, delegates were, were killed in the World Trade Center. And so that's one of those life-changing experiences. I was actually heading back from Heathrow on the train into London and uh, I didn't, you know, none of us at that point knew what had happened. This was maybe four o'clock in the afternoon, UK time. And it wasn't until I got to Liverpool Street Station in in London to get the train back out to Essex where I was living. And I saw the front page of the evening newspaper with the, the iconic picture of the plane hitting the building. I thought, Oh no, I had no idea. I mean, in those days, you know, we didn't really have mobile phones as much as we do today. Exactly. So I didn't go home. I hopped on the underground train back to the office in central London, walked into the office and looked at, uh, the, the, one of the directors of the company and said, what do I do? And he said, man the phones. So I spent the whole of that night, the, the 11th of September night here, nighttime in Europe, that is, uh, taking calls from members of families of people who we had lost in the World Trade Center. Of course, we didn't know that they died at that point. We could only say they were unaccounted for, although I think we all had a pretty good idea of what was going on. Mm. So that... That was an event that caused me to completely reevaluate what was important to me. And about a week after that event, and totally synchronistically, um, an invite came through the post for me to attend a within the Temple of Anubis workshop presented by Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki in Wales in the November. And I just had this very strong feeling I had to go. And so I did go and had some absolutely amazing experiences on that workshop. And it was that workshop, that Temple of Anubis, Egyptian magical training. And I came off of that and I just thought, that's it. I know what my mission in life is now. This is what I'm here to do. And it was that point at which, sure, I've continued ever since my corporate training career. I'm currently head of learning for a national transport logistics company in the UK. But I know that that's the day job that pays the bills. Right. My real, <laughs> my real passion, my real mission in life is to practice and teach magic. Oh, well, thank you for sharing Andy. What an incredible story. And yes, it's funny how destiny will take us to different places. Oddly enough, while you were on Heathrow airport on 9-11, I was uh, flying from Lisbon to New York City. And we were about an hour wow. away when the planes hit and we ended up in Bermuda for a few days. And then, so, um, yeah, funny how destiny is. And, and backing up a bit, how, again, 
NLP, you're talking about magic. Um, obviously, all three of us here probably know that everything is magic. Magic is yes. consciousness expanding, getting to know itself. But when people ask you sort of an elevator pitch and they say, Andy, what's, uh, what's magic? What do you say? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I say that in essence, magic is the the ability for us to use the power of our mind to create changes in physical reality in in the everyday world that we live in and that's it in a nutshell however of course that might be simple but it isn't easy and behind that stacked up behind that is an entire universe of personal development and spiritual development that puts us in a place where we are able to do what I've just described. So whilst magic is the ability for us to use our mind and to harness the powers of the unseen realms to create change in the physical world, hopefully positive change in the physical world, um, it's, it's not necessarily a simple thing to do. But in a nutshell, that's how I would describe it. I guess the caveat or the the rider to that would be, I truly believe that the purpose of us learning magic is to create truly magical lives for ourselves and the people that we love. That sounds yeah, it sounds like a practice results. Well, it 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 is and it isn't. Yeah, absolutely, it is in a sense that um, Stuart Wilde, one of my favourite authors, who I'm sure you've come across, um, who's sadly dead now, but Stuart Wilde always said. Um, you know, what use is a spiritual philosophy if you can't haul it down to the bank on a Friday afternoon? Now, <laughs> I, I, get, I get his very dry sense of humour, and that might offend some people, but I, I actually believe that that's true. Now, I don't believe that that's the be-all and end-all of what we're talking about. I absolutely do not believe that. Um, but if somebody's asking me what is it and what would be the classical definition of magic from the point of view of the average you know, man on a Clapham omnibus, the man on the street, I would definitely say it's the power of our mind to harness the, the unseen powers to create change, positive change in the world. It, however, as you rightly point out, to do that requires a huge amount of inner work and spiritual development. So, just like the ancient Egyptians, I do not make a distinction between magic and spirituality. I think they are one and the same thing. And I don't think you can do one without the other. That the uh, unseen powers include uh, two categories, such as like the unseen things that operate within our minds and then the unseen things that operate, uh, quote unquote, you know, in a greater context. Then, uh, then our minds. <laughs> Good question. And the answer to that is yes. Um, I, I was just smiling as you said that because, um, Tad James once said to me in a private conversation, he said, Andy, he said, one of the, one of the greatest abilities of a modern magician, one of the greatest things you should need to be able to do is to hold both sides of a dichotomy in your mind at the same time and have both be true. And that freaks a lot of people out because that means you've got to be really uncomfortable with direct opposites, both being true at the same time. And in a way, you've you've just encapsulated that in what you said. Right. So is magic is magic out there or is it inside? Is it our imagination or is it real? 
and the answer is yes. So, if, if, you know, all my students often ask that question. They say, well, am I just imagining it or is it real? I'm going, well, yes. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, and, and I go back to one of the amazing things that NLP teaches because of the way it teaches. It gives you, it teaches you, it helps you to attain a high level of mental flexibility. And mental flexibility is a key skill of any practicing magician. You know, it's the ability to have an open mind, to be able to consider all possibilities, including things that you might not particularly like or be comfortable with, and to allow them to be true without having any attachment to them either. So, yeah, that's a long answer to your question, Vance. That's great. Thank you. That's a good answer. Very good answer, and thank you. And uh, I guess my question, going back to NLP, Andy, yeah. um, I would say here in the United States, the most uh, famous practitioner of NLP or somebody who drew upon it would be uh, Tony Robbins. Uh, I thought you were saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about him or what he does? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, again, the, it's no secret that he drew from it partly. Absolutely. So I was a big fan of Unlimited Power when it first came out in the late 1980s. Um, and his subtitle of Unlimited Power was New Learning Process, which is a, a great play on NLP. I think Tony Robbins has done a great service to bringing that knowledge and series of techniques and processes to the world. So I know that there are people who um, are less comfortable with, with some of the stuff that he does than me, but uh, you know, I've never trained with, with Tony Robbins. I have friends who have and generally have very good things to say about him. So my honest opinion is I think he's done a service in bringing that out to very many people. I think both Unlimited Power and his second book, Awaken the Giant Within, was a great book, um, both of which I've read. So, yeah, I I, I, um, I admire him greatly, and I think he's done some great work. I would certainly agree with you. Some of I've, I've done some of his courses a long time ago, and it certainly helped. Uh, but uh, what about uh, something like uh, moving back again as we unpack the interview? Could you tell us more about uh, HUNA and how it relates to NLP or your journey? I think uh, in your notes, something I, I, I was very surprised to see, you write that uh, it was uh, banned as late as 1989? Exactly, yeah. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so I love HUNA. I think it's brilliant. And it relates directly to both NLP and to magic in a very direct way as well shortly explain so th there are some unique features i think of the huna tradition which it, it's useful to to elucidate and the first is that the hawaiian islands as i'm sure many people know were some of the last islands to be for want of a better word conquered by christianity that meant that until relatively recent times and by relatively recent i mean you know the 19th century um, that the Hawaiian Islanders had been left to their own devices without anyone coming and telling them that what they were doing was, was bad or dark or evil or, you know, they were a bunch of heathens. And, and therefore there was a system of spiritual development and, and magic that went relatively unhindered for until pretty recent times. 
And when the Christians did arrive and, you know, effectively forcibly convert everybody to Christianity, they, uh, the teachings didn't die. They just went underground and the teachings were passed down through the families. Now, of course, the Christians still didn't like that very much. So they passed all kinds of laws in Hawaii to outlaw the practice of witchcraft as is still the case in many islands, such as even the Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey here in the United Kingdom. It's illegal to practice witchcraft even today. Wow. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, um, which is interesting because, of course, Dolores Ashcroft-Wiki lives in Jersey, and, and she's well-known as the witch in Jersey as the head of an international magical school, but uh, <laughs> you know, she's, Funny, she's yeah. not been burnt at the stake, thank goodness. <laughs> but nonetheless... Um, the, the last laws that banned the practice of Huna in Hawaii were repealed in 1989. So there's a famous story of uh, a, a kahuna called Daddy Bray, who in the 1950s was chanting Huna chants outside the Kamehameha Palace in Kona on the Big Island, and he was arrested and thrown into jail. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, in many ways, it's quite shocking. So, but nonetheless, as... Um, as there started to be a revival of interest in the uh, Hawaiian Huna, Huna traditions, of course, then it started to you know, come out of the woodwork again. And the other thing that's really interesting about Huna, which I'm fascinated by, is that the teachings are buried, very cleverly buried in the chants. And the chants, of course, are the chants that accompany the dance, the famous hula dance, the girls in the grass skirts bobbing up and down, that you know, they put on for the tourists. So the clever thing is that the teachings are deeply buried in those chants, and it takes a certain mindset to be able to unpack those chants. So if you go to the Bishop Museum in Honolulu and you look at the the modern anthropologist's translation of the Hawaiian chants, it's all about the birds and the bees and, and Pele and the volcano and and all that kind of stuff. It's all very nice and jolly. But actually, if you were to have it to look at those chants with a much more esoteric eye, you would see that they refer in a much deeper way to spiritual development processes. And one of the things Tad James did was he actually published a book on the Huna chants that unpacked many of the Huna chants um, from a, an esoteric and spiritual point of view, rather from a much higher level kind of interpretation of the bees and the, the, the flowers and, and the rest of it. So it's really interesting that, that, that there was a way of recovering some of that lost knowledge. Now, in addition, of course, that lost knowledge was handed down through the father to son and mother to daughter through the families. So one of the things Tad James came across when he was researching the Huna tradition, and this would have been in the late 1980s, early 1990s, he was given by a family who um, had a, a tradition of practicing Huna within the family, a document that had many symbols drawn into it that looked like Reiki symbols. And Tad was very interested by them. And he at first thought they were essentially a system of divination. And the family sort of said, well, we don't really know much about those, but, you know, it's interesting background stuff if you want to go and research it. So Tad James immediately took these slightly odd-looking symbols to his mentor, Uncle George, and said, you know, what are those? And Uncle George went, whoa, don't go near those. That's bad stuff, that is. That's, whoa, don't touch that. <laughs> so, of course, Tad James is like, wow, that's great. I'm on there. I'm going to test it all out. 
And essentially, they figured out that it was a system of healing. And these symbols were exactly like Reiki symbols. And there were 36 of them. And he figured out how they should be used. And one of them is a initiation symbol, just like in Reiki. And there's a particular goddess in the Hawaiian pantheon, Uli, that controls that system of symbols. And they beta tested it. They initiated people into the symbols and they didn't initiate people, but didn't tell them they hadn't. So they kind of did blind tests and then figured out how it worked over a period of years and eventually started teaching that energy healing system. Um, so that's how that came about. It's a fascinating story and it is an amazing system of healing. So, but not just healing. So just as some Reiki masters might, might do, and I'm a Reiki master too, but I have to say, I, kind of prefer to use Huna than, than Reiki. If I'm running a training course in um, in, a, in a corporate environment, as I frequently do, I will always use the Huna symbols to set up an energy grid in the room before the students get there. I'll energetically clean the room. I'll put up an energy grid. I'll um, invoke the things I need to invoke. And then I will, you know, the students come in. Now, they don't know that I'm doing that and neither would I tell them. But I'm setting up the energetics of a room so that the students have the best learning experience possible. Now, I believe that as a trainer with a set of skills, it's my job to use my skills to the best of my ability to create the best kind of experience that my students can have. So why wouldn't I do that? And uh, just a funny story. I was in New York one time running a training course for an international bank. And uh, stu- uh, one of the people on course came up to me and they said, oh, we've just found this. And hidden behind one of the curtains in the corner of the room was a yellow post-it note and on it, on of which was drawn a Hawaiian symbol. Not that he knew it, but of course I did. And he said, oh, no, what's this? So I said, oh, I don't know. I said, tell you what. I said, I think you should just put it back. I said, you never know. Somebody else might have put that there for some other reason from the hotel. So I should just put it back and forget about it if I were you. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it is, um, anyway, the, the other follow up to the, the energy healing part of Huna is that it has a very, um, sophisticated system in it for removing limiting beliefs and negative emotions. So much as, um, NLP does, NLP has a number of different techniques for removing limiting beliefs and negative emotions from the past. So does Huna. And in fact, our James, John Overdorf and Julie Silverthorne developed a system called, they call higher self therapy. And essentially, you are initiated into the HUNA system and you receive a number of healing guides that are assigned to you by the god Kane, the creator god in the Hawaiian system. And those healing guides essentially act as angels, for want of a better description. They call them avaiku in the Hawaiian tradition. And you can instruct those healing guides to work with you. And they know a certain amount they also learn and they can also do what you can do but more effectively if you like so if i was doing timeline therapy which is an nlp technique for releasing negative emotions from the past for someone who's got trauma um i would get my healing guys my avaiku to do that on my behalf to do that for me they do it way better than i do and way faster than i do uh, and do it every time so I can essentially do NLP healing techniques on people, clearing negative emotions, limiting beliefs, and all that stuff, but do it way quicker than I could do using NLP. Now, thing is, for a lot of clients, you never tell them that because they they would think you should go be locked up. 
So, <laughs> what you are know, you doing? Summon these demons or angels yeah, to help doing, out? <laughs> what do I so need you, you for? <laughs> exactly. So you don't tell them that. You tell them you're doing NLP, and outwardly you do the show with all the NLP stuff because you know that's what they want to see and that's what they're paying for. But inside your head, you're doing all the inner stuff because you know that it stacks the deck and really makes it work. So. That's why I love it because in from a, a healing and NLP perspective, a Huna basically allows you to really make sure just stacking the deck, if you like, to make sure that everything you do really works. And would you say, Andy, that Huna is uh, an animist tradition? Everything's alive. It's uh, leans on the spirit world. I mean, am I right or close to it? Yeah, you are, you are close to it. That's right. Um, they have a strong tradition of, uh, and a little bit like the Japanese system, really, which is kind of not surprising given that they're a Polynesian island. Um, they have a system of sort of ancestral magic and ancestral worship, the alihi, the uh, royalty from the past. And, and so a lot of the Huna techniques, you will, you know, suddenly find that you're surrounded by Hawaiian warriors from a thousand years ago who just turn up and say, what do you want me to do now? You know, we're here. You called <laughs> yeah. us. Feel um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, there is that. Um, and there is uh, a, a strong tradition of, uh, of ancestor type uh, magic as well. So absolutely. It is a shamanic tradition, essentially. It's not the path of high magic. It, it's more of a shamanic tradition. Oh, very cool. Vince, do you have any questions about Huna since uh, it's a fascinating uh, tradition that we're learning about? Oh, yeah. Um, this reminds me, uh, when I was on the Big Island uh, in the 80s, and we went to this um, village. It was like kind of a holy village. Uh, do you know which one I'm talking about? There is a- oh, now, now. Yeah, you you can uh yeah, you can visit it and they talked about yeah. all the spiritual traditions and so forth and Madame Pele, um is she part of the Huna? Yeah, uh, she is. So the place you're talking about on the big island is um on the Kona side of the island further south yes. it's called Ho Now Now. Um and it's a city of refuge. It's a very That's sacred it. place. It. Um it, it does some interesting things in that place. Um I was there, the first time I was there was in 1994, and there's a a lot of fallen stones. And Todd James actually said to me, Andy, he said, just go put your head against that stone and tell me what you think. And I came away and I just went, whoa, that is not good. I do not feel good about this place. And I looked at him, I said, they did human sacrifice here. And he said, yeah, they did. That's right. They did. Now, they didn't tell us um, that. <laughs> yeah. Now the reason, um, and, and that's a, a long story in and of itself, but there are three orders of Kahuna, the order of Kane, the order of Lono, and the order of Ku. And in very loose terms, they relate to the, you could relate them to the conscious mind, the unconscious mind, the higher self. And one of those orders essentially is the lowest order that was into practicing Warcraft and it did practice human sacrifice. The higher order, the order of Kane, was completely different. It didn't do any of those things. So there were different, and the order of Kane were the kind of high priests more than the the lower orders, which essentially taught Warcraft and, and practical arts rather than the spiritual stuff. But some of them did practice human sacrifice. So there is some residual energy around that, particularly you pick it up in Hona now. But yeah, Hona now is an amazing place and particularly to be there at sunset. And the Hawaiians have a, 
a sort of evening ritual where as the sun disappears down over the, the horizon below the ocean, they uh, stand and face the sun and they put all their worries and woes and stress of the day into the sun as it disappears below the horizon. And to do that exercise, that meditation in Honan now is a, is a truly magical experience. Wow. Yeah, and, and Pele, just to finish your question, Vance, she is the goddess of the volcano she, the, yes. the, um, uh, on the big island. She is the goddess of fire, essentially, in the Hawaiian tradition. Um, and um, she's she's kind of the, the Hawaiian version of Sekhmet in the Egyptian tradition, I would I would say. Um, and in the days when you were allowed to do this, when it wasn't too dangerous to do it, we used to walk across the uh, crater of the volcano the lava plug in the volcano and it's about an eight hour walk across the the lava plug and when you get to one end of it there's a a a steep drop into a sort of well it's not quite molten but a very hot deep part of the crater where you know it's not a safe place to, to get too close to and people will throw gin and tobacco into that crater because those are gifts to the goddess pele so yeah, they uh, told us there were sightings of Pele um, probably to this day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there are stories um, of Hawaiian kahunas, particularly if the volcano erupts and the lava tended to flow down to the Hilo side of the island, the opposite side of the big island to, to, to uh, Kona. And there has been a number of occasions in the past where the the lava has been in danger of engulfing Hilo or some of the surrounding villages to to Hilo. And their only solution is to call the kahunas who clear all the TV cameras out of the way and sit and chant and they stop the flow of lava. And I've personally, with my own eyes, seen it happen. Really? Wow. Really. Uh, It's essentially a series of chants to the goddess Pele saying, you know, please, please don't don't engulf our village with your lover. I have absolutely seen that with my own eyes. Yeah. Do you think the volcanoes lend a power to magical practice on Hawaii? Absolutely, they do, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I'll give you an interesting example that happened to me personally. The first time I walked across the crater of the volcano, this would have been June, June May, June 1994. And it's a as I said, it's about an eight-hour journey and walking across, chanting most of the way. The next day, um, you know, I was in my hotel room and I woke up with a temperature of over 100 and I couldn't get out of bed. I was really not okay. And literally, I was sweating for the whole day. The next day, I was completely fine. And um, Tad James looked at me and just said, you got too much fire in you, too much fire element. Wow. And, um, yeah, I think that was true. Absolutely. I think that was overload. True. Yeah, overload. Yeah. Too much Pele. Yeah. <laughs> and not the one that scores, scores goals, but the, no, exactly. Yeah. It's like segment and you're talking a very primordial, dangerous, sexual, violent deity, right? You are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't know how to handle that energy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that goes, Miguel, for many different God forms. If you don't know how to handle that energy, you end up quite quite often people end up going off the rails in one way or another. Yeah, definitely would agree. So yeah, fascinating about uh, Huna. But uh, going back to NLP, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the techniques and uh, 
so forth so the the audience can get sort of a, a top soil view of viewer understanding and they can seek it too but I guess my first question would be one of the central tenets, if you would, would be that of modeling. And you did mention this earlier on, Andy, but could you explain to the audience what modeling is and how it works? Certainly. And it's a good way of explaining the genesis of NLP in a way. So what actually happened was, as Vance alluded to, in the mid-1970s in California, in the University of California at Berkeley, to be precise, Richard Bandler, who was at the time a PhD doctoral student, um, went and did a uh, training with Fritz Perls, the father of Gestalt therapy. And as a result of that, became very, very interested in you know, psychotherapy and personal change. And he happened to have a friend, uh, John Grinder, who was an associate professor of linguistics. And Bandler at the time, I think I'm right in saying, was a cyberneticist. So the two of them set off on a bit of a quest. And they were curious at how particular therapists were amazingly successful at what they did. And the two examples that stand out that they modeled, they really wanted to understand how they did what they did, was Milton Erickson, the professor of clinical hypnotherapy in uh, Arizona and Virginia Satia, the woman who wrote the book family uh, people making the mother, if you like the founder of family therapy. And these two therapists were remarkably successful at what they did. So Virginia Satia worked with dysfunctional families that were very, very dysfunctional and whatever she did, she worked her magic and, and essentially fixed them for want of a better description. At the same time, Milton Erickson would take the, you know, to put it bluntly, the basket cases, the people who nobody else could fix, and he would work his magic, and remarkably, these people would be leading happy, fulfilling lives. So Bandler and Grinder were like, what on earth are these guys doing? You know, if how can we bottle that and give it to other people? So <laughs> Exactly. That's how they started on the quest for NLP. And they modeled, they looked at Virginia, well, there was a number of people they looked at, uh, but Virginia Satia and Milton Erickson were the two initial kind of candidates. And they, they watched them and they observed them and they really tried to understand what is it they are doing that makes the, the, the difference, that really makes them successful. And it's not a, about just what they're saying, it's why are they saying it? How are they using language in a specific way? What other things are they doing inside their own head? What are they thinking about the people they're working with? How are they seeing those people in their mind? And what they started to discover was that Ericsson and Satira, amongst others, were holding the people they worked with in their mind as being completely healed and successful. And they never for an instant doubted that that was not possible. They always believed that the people they worked with were capable of healing and would be healed. Now, then everything flowed from that fundamental belief, because what then happened was, if you, if you think about what happens to us in our daily lives, if we think something isn't going to happen or something isn't possible we behave in a way that supports that belief so we'll go well there's no point in doing that because it's not going to work because it will never happen 
So what you do is you close down possibilities because you believe that something isn't possible. If you believe that something's possible, you just haven't found out how to do it yet. It keeps you open to new possibilities. And it keeps you searching for a solution because when you believe that everything's possible and you just haven't found the right solution yet, essentially you'll never stop looking until you do. So it causes you to be more open-minded, more creative, more resourceful, because you will always be searching for what's the thing I need to do in order to, to get the solution, to make to get the outcome I want. And they realized that Ericsson and Satya did these things. And what flowed out of that was uh, an understanding of the importance of belief and values, internal belief and values, in driving certain kinds of behavior and and in driving certain kinds of positive behavior that created positive outcomes. And, And that that research, that work was the foundation of essentially behavioral modeling. How do we uh, really get to under the surface of what successful people are doing and how do we really really understand what they're doing inside their head and if we know that can we then teach that to other people so what flowed out of that initial work was what is the foundational stones of neuro-linguistic programming and they are called the presuppositions of nlp now the presuppositions of NLP, there's a different number depending on the teacher you go to, but typically there's 16 or 18 depending on how you phrase them, are a set of fundamental beliefs that if you adopt them and behave as if they are true, they will get you amazing results. So we're not asking people to believe them. We're asking people to pretend that they're true. Now, <laughs> that's a that's a subtle distinction right very much and, yeah so in a way we absolutely want people to believe them but you can't start off that way because you can't tell people they've got to believe it so instead what you do is you say to people look just pretend it's true and see where it gets you so to give you some examples of the fundamental presuppositions of neuro-linguistic programming one of them is there's no failure only feedback now What does that give us? It gives us the opportunity where when we do something that doesn't work, instead of saying, oh, come on, Andy, you are pretty stupid. You're pretty dumb because you didn't get that right. Instead, you say, "Okay, that didn't work. It didn't get the outcome I wanted. So, okay, what do I need to do to get a different outcome? I've got information. I've got feedback that tells me that what I did didn't work. Okay, so do something different then. So what it does is it allows you to get away from judgment and it allows you to stay searching for other possibilities. Another presupposition is the person with the most flexibility um, controls the system, the law of requisite variety. What does that mean? It means that the more flexible we are, the more likely we are to create the results in our lives that we want. So as a trainer or as an NLP practitioner, the more flexible my behavior can be, the more I am able to adapt to meet the needs of the person I'm working with to enable them to get what they need to get. Or uh, another presupposition is everybody has the resources they need to succeed. So again, that's the Virginia Satir and Ericsson belief that everyone is capable of changing. 
I mean, why would I not want to believe that? <laughs> I mean, I can't wrap my head around why you wouldn't believe that, but you know, it is people do. It. And then another one would be everyone is doing the best they can with the resources they have available to them at the time. And it's useful to believe their intention is positive. Now, what does that mean? It means that it, it, it's great if we apply it to our kids, right? Well, my kids are grown up now, but well, even when they were little, if they were, if they were being a pain in the neck and you know, as kids are, instead of just getting really angry and wanting to you know, clobber them or something as we've often attempted <laughs> to do, um, sometimes, you know, I could step back, not always and say, okay, so look, my child is behaving in a way that is trying to get them an outcome. The behavior they're doing isn't, isn't getting the outcome, but they're not deliberately trying to be an awkward little horrible sod. They're actually trying to get an outcome and that outcome isn't working for them. But you know, let's, let's first of all, believe the intention is positive <laughs> and then let's try and figure out what the problem is so we can fix it. Right. So that leads us to one of the other presuppositions, which is a person is not their behavior. So that's really important because we tend to lump the two together. And we say, you know, that's a bad person. Well, it's not a bad person. It's a person who is doing things that isn't serving them or the or people around them. That doesn't make them bad. It just means they don't have the choices available to them that other people do that allows them to be more resourceful and get a different outcome. So those fundamental presuppositions, those fundamental beliefs that if we adopt them, if we act as if they are true, if we pretend that they're true, eventually, of course, they become so ingrained in us that they are true, that we essentially are creating a reality that says that is true. Then if we adopt those and we behave as if those are true, we can create amazing results in our lives. Well, how is that not a brilliant set of rules to live your life by? I would agree. And Andy, what I like also about NLP is, um, well, in life we have goals, right? We want the yeah. house or the, the job or to live a more spiritual life, or we want to save money to buy a certain object, whatever it is. But yeah. what NLP teaches is that it's not the object that you really want. It's the feeling of accomplishing or getting that goal and you can recreate that feeling long before the goal and long after the whether the goal happens or not you can keep that feeling of whatever it is excitement satisfaction uh, passion what do you think of this i think it's a great aspect of nlp you're spot on miguel so one of the really really key things is people say i want to be happy and you go well you can have that now <laughs> You don't have to wait to be happy. <laughs> and, um, and that re I mean, I have to laugh because people think when I get this, then I'll be happy. And I'm like, hang on a minute. NLP makes some really good, valid distinctions between what you've just said, which is a state and a goal. So a goal is something we want to get. That's an outcome. It's a specific you know, thing. So it could be to have an amazing relationship. It could be to buy a new property. It could be to have a great car, whatever those things are, all of which, you know, they're fine. No problem with that. But if you're tying your happiness to those things, that's a real issue um, because you can be happy today. You know, happiness is a state. It's not a goal. You can be happy doing whatever you're doing. You just have to choose to be happy. And that leads us on to one of the other things that makes a lot of people laugh when I say it, but 
most people spend an awful lot of their life making things up in the future. And when they do, they make them up to be bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's put it this way. The future hasn't happened yet. So why would you want to pretend that it's going to be bad? And I, I can always struggle to wrap my head around this because people will, will say all kinds of things. And I go, hang on a minute. I mean, uh, for example, someone in the office today said, uh, they were worried about going to the dentist next week. So I said, well, why would you be worried about going to see the dentist? So this is, well, you know, I, I hate the dentist. It's, it's, it's really scary. And I said, so why is it scary? And they said, well, you know, all bad things happen when you go to the dentist. And I went, hang on a minute. It's not happened yet. You've not been there. <laughs> and you've no idea what's going to happen. So why don't you just pretend it's going to be good? Because it probably is. And when you get into the habit of doing that, it changes how you feel every moment by moment, not just, you know, it's, it, it's um, one of the amazing gifts that NLP gives you is this ability to be able to make these kind of distinctions and understand that if I'm feeling bad or pissed off or whatever it is, that's a choice I'm making to feel that way. And I can choose to feel differently. And sometimes I might go, well, I want to be pissed off and angry. I'll do that. Thanks very much. <laughs> but I know that I'm choosing to do that. And if that isn't getting the people around me in a good space, why on earth would I want to keep doing it? So it, one of the key things we say about NLP is it puts people at choice. It gives people the choice to understand and have the power to change how they respond and feel moment by moment. And that's a key magical skill as well as a key, you know, skill in life. So this is why I love it so much. You know, just one other thing, Miguel, that you just touched on from something earlier. Some people say that NLP is really bad because you can manipulate people with it. Well, to a degree, that's true. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't because it teaches you such amazing communication skills that you could indeed use it for not so amazingly good outcomes. For example, how can I use this to get someone into bed, for example, which is a common you know, thing you see people on the internet selling courses to do well you can it works it works because it's a very 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 effective communication skill now that doesn't make nlp bad it makes the people who use it in that way who have no integrity the kind of people i definitely don't want to be within a, mi a million miles of but it it that doesn't make nlp bad it just makes those people who you know i guess at some point in a you know in a future life they might be paying for that but i um that's what upsets me because people then get a bad impression of nlp nlp is the most amazing gift for people to have really truly fulfilling lives when it's used appropriately that was really well said and thank you so we are at the end andy where can the audience learn more about your work so helios-school.com is our website that's the home online of the helios mystery school helios school of esoteric science um and we have a, a, a growing community of students on there we're actually offering right now a uh seven week live online training in the egyptian mysteries that starts in october 
and that's um, no no commitment to doing any kind of initiatory training. We put it together, A, because it's a lot of fun, B, because we love Egyptian magic, and C, because actually it allows people to have a taste of what we do without really committing to anything. So um, if people are interested in that, that will be a fun thing to have people come on board and do. But helios-school.com is where you will find me and my fellow initiates and everything we do at Helios. Very cool. Well, again, we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, uh, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. I hope you went from uh, a frog to a princess. <laughs> princess. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, you know. Wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, it was great. And, uh, Andy, uh, great work you're doing there. I uh, appreciate the breadth of, uh, of what you do. And, Thank you. um, I learned a lot by listening today. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. I really enjoyed it too. Yes, Andy, we really enjoyed your work and your ideas, and we certainly look forward for the next time you can come on Aeon Byte. But uh, thanks for your time, and thanks for everything you do. I would love to. Thanks, Miguel. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. Andy Cooper on a treasure trove of knowledge and pathways to your embracing your lucid psychosis and eventual ecstasy. We continue in our second part. We get deeper into NLP, including how to achieve happiness. Andy will counter the negative things peeps say about NLP. Andy will also share how NLP can help with trauma. And I know all of us are in some type of trauma in 2020. You know we will talk about psychotherapy and Jung, as well as how Carlos Castaneda relates to NLP. Can you learn NLP without a trainer? Andy will address that too. He'll share about the Helios School of Esoteric Science, Magic, and the concept of Initiation. And what can we do spiritually to cope with this FUBAR year? So please become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full therapy. And plenty of more rewards and a direct path to joining a Gnostic community that is becoming the revolution. Instead of me maimonsplaining all the benefits, please go to thegodabovegod.com or just message my ass. Let's keep growing this red pill cafeteria. 2020 has been Aeon Byte's best year, and that's largely because many are realizing these are Gnostic times, and only Gnosis will set us free. You are the final authority, have always been. Now you must finally get off this damn ship of fools. Anything else would be foolish, even sane. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Yo, 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 big, big, big shouts out to Rich Craner, the no-brainer. 
Big shouts out to Abraxas coming to us in his uh, meat sack incarnation, aka Miguel Connor. Shouts out to Sir Gru, shout out to Moscow. Shouts out to PK DJPZ, the real JPZ, DJ Jet the Sloth, Alexander Shogun, Wadi Tudor Jones. Yo. I'm the creature living in your nightmares, nightmares. Even Steven, cause I'm buck like Shia when I kill these demons. I'm the demon slayer. Everything I do, I do with player. And if you don't like it, do you really think I give a care? You're fuck John Mayer. Fuck John Ashcroft. Fuck John Randolph. I'm back like Gandalf. I am not a conjurer of cheap tricks. Man, something like a lynch main. I ain't gotta explain. But I can break it down like a Christmas tree in January. If you listen to me for a minute Three or four or five Half dead, half alive Since the first day I opened my eyes While y'all are over there Doing beer yoga I'm over here spitting verses Like a spitting cobra See I'm a maverick A beatnik The odd man out Like a hoodie in the summer I'ma always stand out Everybody's got a role to play In this cosmic human drama In the shed At the altar of the goddess of the dead Time to see my weapon And I'ma be a heretic Till the day I die I know you heard what I said Can you hear me now? Do you know your purpose? Your reason to exist? Can you write your own gospel And live your own myth? Are you following your bliss? Or just following a trend? Are you following your whims With a whistle on the wind? If not, I feel sorrow Crosis, you need a couple high doses Of your gnosis right to the brain like an elder scroll Likely to drive you insane That's just how I roll I paid my toll And bought the ticket to ride And I won't stop till I make it to the other side And probably after Cause I don't wanna let go The sound of my laughter as an infinite echo Yeah Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.